if one aircraft can refuel five to seven F-35s as opposed to five aircraft or six aircraft doing that, then what do we do with those other assets that we couldn't do in the past because we didn't have enough tankers to support the entire scenario that we're looking at? From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. The less fuel you have to carry, the fewer aircraft are needed to support the sharp end of the spear, and the more effective you could be at warfighting. Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Operational Energy, Roberto Guerrero, tells us how the force is adopting novel technology as well as changing how it operates, saving fuel not only to save money, but to be better at its primary mission of delivering air power any place on the planet. And we'll also have this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. From America's first jet engine to the revolutionary three-stream adaptive cycle engine, GE Aerospace has been delivering firsts for military propulsion for more than 100 years. Learn about the latest innovation at geaerospace.com XA100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage and Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? Vago, we told folks it was coming and now it has happened. The U.S. Air Force has retired its last E-8J stars. All those used 707s are now out in the desert and we're doing ground-moving target indication by some other means. Something else that we knew was coming, Boeing has received a contract for 15 more KC-46s. After this lot, there will be 26 left in the program, so the Air Force has to get around to deciding what's next in its tanker fleet. The F-35 Joint Program Office decided what's next with regards to propulsion, concluding a contract with Pratt & Whitney for F-135 upgrades. Argentina has made a deal to acquire four P-3s from Norway, and Iran has a deal with Russia for Sukhoi-35 fighter jets, Mil-28 attack helicopters, and Yak-130 jet trainers. There aren't many places Russia can sell aircraft anymore, so Iran probably got a good deal. And as we go to press, information has come in of the crash of a V-22 off southern Japan. Our thoughts to all those involved and affected. Vaga? A fascinating week. I remember uh, starting my career covering uh, the Joint Surveillance Target Attack Radar System, otherwise known as Joint Stars, which was, uh, if I recall correctly, an ACTD, an advanced concept technology demonstrator that was pressed into service during the first Gulf War, right? I mean, uh, there were those who claimed that the program never overcame that original sin of having been you know, put together in sort of fast fashion to mm -hmm. deliver uh, the capability, but it was an extraordinary capability, uh, ultimately. And some of those used 707s had been carrying cattle in South America. Crews would tell you that on a hot day, they could tell you which planes those were. They did. Some had to, I think, have rice jackhammered because they had been used for cargo, uh, some in Asia. And I think they'd even some had been used to move camels. And one apparently had a fuselage that was a little bit bent. So you could always tell which one that was when you were uh, flying it. I can't remember uh, the tail number. You were familiar with the program. You were uh, the chief staffer for this stuff on the House Armed Services Committee. Tell the audience a little bit about what comes next after this, right? Because moving target indication is a critical capability. There are different ways of doing it. The Air Force has looked at space-based means and other means. 
What's the future of this? Because obviously, if you're an airplane maker like Northrop Grumman, you wanted there to be a follow-on or even Boeing, you wanted it to be, you know, a big airplane that does this and the Air Force is going in a different direction. And that was to be the E-10. You may remember the MC-2A program to develop the follow-on to the E-8. That went away, and the Air Force has been very tight-lipped about how they're doing ground-moving target indication and other forms of moving target indication. It's pretty clearly going to be space-based, but what technology they're using, they don't want anybody to know. That having been said, uh, the idea was uh, in some quarters that the Alliance Ground Surveillance System, which is the NATO version of the aircraft based on the Global Hawk, would have been a platform that was going to succeed the E-8. Any sense on whether or not that becomes an option at some point, although right less tenable given the United States is retiring of the Global Hawk in favor of uh, the RQ-180 ultimately? Well, ultimately, what you'd wind up with is some solution where the people who are doing the interpretation of the data don't have to be on the aircraft that's collecting the data. And it's a lot safer to have your sensors up toward the front and your people in the rear area. We have enough connectivity now and enough bandwidth to take the kind of data that used to be read inside the E8 or an E3 and other similar platforms and do all of that remotely. So your sensors can take many forms, whether space-based, carried by UAS, or being a collateral of something else that's already operating in the area like F-35, where they're picking up enormous amounts of data with the radar system. You know, speaking of large uh, airplanes, I, I think this is a good segue to get to the KC-46 program. Obviously, the Joint Star is the E-8 is a 707, uh, whereas uh, the 135 is a 135 airplane and is the Strato tanker. Love that name. Anything that has Strato in it is uh, is, is terrific. Designed to support the uh, Strato Fortress. Under this new contract, those 15 airplanes are under a $2.3 billion contract. It's fixed price. I think it's $158 million or something, which is a pretty pretty good deal uh, to get a tanker airplane, at least good for the Air Force, maybe somewhat less good for Boeing. How much time does the Air Force have before it needs to make a decision on what comes after that? Well, if you look at the fact that there's 26 aircraft left, that's basically two years production, less than two years production in the KCX program for KC-46. So they need to develop a new program now. Now, we've had the KCY or bridge tanker program under a variety of names coming along for a while. The Air Force still hasn't settled on an acquisition strategy for that program. And frankly, even if it's just ordering more KC-46s, Boeing needs to know that now before they have to start shutting down lines and telling suppliers there's no more airplanes in the pipeline. Indeed. And then bring the audience up to speed, right? I mean, obviously, our sponsor uh, and uh, Pratt & Whitney both have contracts under the AETP program, you know, but but the Air Force and the DOD had decided that they were going to do the engine upgrade on the 135 instead of going to a potentially new engine. There were those who still would like to see that, but obviously the outlook for the program is a little bit uncertain at this point, right? It was the next budget item, unfortunately, that got dropped when the administration reduced its budget. Ultimately, give the audience a little bit of a recap on what that upgrade includes in order to keep powering the F-35 fleet, right? I mean, we need those jets. We're trying to get them into service. We're doing block three. We're going to do block four. Walk us through what the upgrades mean at a time when the customer is putting a squeeze on an engine to get more power out of it for the electrical systems, as well as address some reliability challenges. Power. Stem in part from running them hotter and harder. 
And that electrical system power is the main thing that they need more of, but also more cooling through the engine. And both the approaches, the GE approach, which is a next generation engine, the Pratt approach, which is enhancements to the current engine, achieve those goals. They achieve different levels at different cost points. But I think the uh, thing that turned the tide in favor of Pratt in this case was the notion that that engine upgrade would be applicable to all F-35s rather than being primarily applicable to the F-35A fleet. GE has made clear that they believe they can make their engine work for the Bs and Cs as well, but it was the easier, more off-the-shelf solution that the department decided to go with. And as you say, very senior Air Force officials have indicated that this was not the outcome they wanted. They felt driven there by budget circumstances. And JJ, just to bring our audience up to speed exactly, as we record this, there's one confirmed fatality and uh, a search is ongoing for the other five crew members uh, aboard that V-22. And indeed, we will keep all of those crew members and their families and their friends in our thoughts at what is uh, a very difficult time. If you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts on the award-winning Defense and Aerospace Report Network. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company. They clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our Technology Report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. Congratulations to Chris, Chris, and Laura for winning 2023 Defense Media Awards. And joining us today is Roberto Guerrero, former Air Force Colonel and now the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Operational Energy, who's working to improve the fuel efficiency of the force and its ability to do more with less energy. Sir, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. There's a view that energy efficiency is about sustainability rather than capability, but your job has operational right there in the title. What's your role and your goal and is your success measured on improvements in capability or improvements in greenness? So I work in the Office of Installations, Environment, and Energy for the Secretariat in the Air Force. Uh, I report to uh, Assistant Secretary Chaudhry, who uh, oversees this part of the Secretariat. And I deal with, like you said, the operational energy side. So my goal is to maximize combat capability of our assets and our airmen by optimizing processes as well as, you know, using technology to optimize the way our platforms operate. Our bottom line is that there are second and third order effects to what we do with respect to uh, lowering costs, lowering sustainability, lowering greenhouse gas emissions. But, you know, our focus is how do we fuel more fight and how do we fuel more fight by let's say having a planning process that makes the execution of our mission more, much more effective or having aircraft that has that much more fuel to give at a certain range than it would have had in the past. So for us, capability is our primary goal and a tanker that let's say has another 5,000 pounds to give a fighter at the end of its range is one of those outcomes that we're looking for. 
at the Royal Air Force's Air and Space Chiefs Conference uh, over the summer, uh, you gave just an absolutely terrific presentation. And you talked about both ends of this, right? I mean, some of the changes you guys are making on the ground, whether it's through mission planning, as well as adopting some ideas, for example, that major airlines like Delta Airlines is using in terms of fins and vanes on aircraft. Uh, to make them more fuel efficient. Walk us through the array of tools you're bringing to bear to help change that operational energy equation because some, in some places of the world, you're already saving you know millions of pounds of fuel burn just by doing some very simple and thoughtful things that are actually proving to be game-changing. So initially, we got involved in this in trying to understand fuel logistics supply chain risk understand how well we are able to operate in areas like the Pacific, which we're transitioning to, and what could we do to optimize mission execution. And so really, like the roots of at least some of the process stuff that we've been doing were born out of a visit that Eric Schmidt from Google made to the command post to the Air Operations Center in Al-Udeed, in the Middle East, where he discovered that we were doing pretty complex mission scheduling, like on the order of approximately 50 aerial tankers supporting 250 aerial receivers with a dry erase marker and magnets on a whiteboard. And that just isn't a 21st century way of doing things. He came to the Defense Innovation Board that he was part of and said, we need to change things like this. So let's start off with this one particular effort and take it from there. And so that's why we're interested. We've actually supported that effort, which started with getting about a 4% efficiency gain on that scheduling by taking it from whiteboard to electronic whiteboard. And then we saw that and said, we would like to invest in making it an automated electronic whiteboard. So that 4% efficiency gain, which is a couple of extra tankers. Now we're getting into double digit efficiency gains by having an algorithm in the background that not only helps speed that process from like, let's say, uh, eight to 12 hour scheduling effort with a few folks down to two to four hours now to, you know, minutes uh, in getting a much better solution than we could have in the past. So from a process perspective, those are the type of things that Delta Airlines, Maersk, all these other companies have been doing for years, and we hadn't gotten there yet. So this whole revolution in agile software development has really born out of our initial exposure to what's called Jigsaw, which was out of Aludeed, and now take that to a variety of different things that we do in the Air Force that those type of tools can be applied to. For example, cargo loading. We could do it much more efficiently now with not only figuring out ways to stack cargo, but also thinking about ways to run algorithms that help us maximize the load and maximize the aerodynamics of that aircraft in a cargo load that could be executing the tip fit out in the Pacific. That's kind of some of those areas that industry has been doing for a while that we're starting to do. Now, on the other end of that is we're also looking at things that, we, and we've been teaming with Delta on engine performance that includes um, better engine washes than we've been doing in the past as well as coatings for compressor blades that allow that engine to perform at a better rate for longer periods of time because the blades don't erode as quickly, as well as aft body drag reduction, which you mentioned earlier, which just helps us eat off a couple percentage points of efficiency by making the flow off the tail, much like we do with winglets nowadays, making the flow off the tail much mm -hmm. more efficient. 
And so like just recently, we finished testing C-17s for microveins, and now we're going through a process of serviceability testing on 10 C-17 microvein equipped aircraft. And then eventually we're going to expand that to the whole fleet. And from a savings perspective, you're talking about outfitting the entire fleet of C-17s, about 222 aircraft with microveins. We think that total installation cost is around $6 million because they're very easy to install 3D printed fins uh, that are glued to the side of the aircraft. And now each year, those aircraft will be 1% more efficient because of the flow off the tail, which is about a $10 million savings each year. Well, let's follow up on the fuel logistics, because a great power war, even just one, will tax the United States' ability to move huge quantities of fuel to the other side of the planet to allow our forces to operate. Each gallon or pound of fuel carries a price, sometimes in lives, involved in moving and protecting it. Do you have a savings target and or how is success measured in that yeah. scenario? No, that's great. So we think about it uh, in what we call energy intensity. And by improving the energy intensity of our assets, that allows us to do more mission with the same amount of fuel. And so our goal is to improve the energy intensity of Air Force platforms in total by 5% by 2027 and by 7.5% in 2032. And that's in our climate action plan. Being able to do that allows us to have assets that are just that much more efficient that helps eat away at that fuel logistics supply chain risk in places like the Pacific. And I think to some folks, they, there's not a an understanding of how large the theater is. You know, that the travel distances between Al-Udid and let's say Bagram, Afghanistan was about 1200 miles. The distance from Hawaii to Guam is about 3,500 miles. The distance from Hawaii to like, let's say halfway between Guam and Taiwan is 4,000 miles. And when you start, you know, multiplying the distances by two or three times like you're doing in the Pacific, that immediately leads you to thinking through how do we support a long game in places like the Pacific where there are very few locations where we can actually have fuel stored because there are islands that are very far apart from one another. And then how do we protect those assets in case of man-made or natural disaster? And what does the change in process and technology do to helping us support more operations at that long range? I should also uh, point out to the audience that you began your career as a naval aviator and you ended up joining and doing a service transfer into the United States Air Force, where you also flew some big airplanes where range was at a premium. One of the things, sir, you described in your RAF talk was the need for culture change that, you know, folks were doing this with grease pencils, right? As opposed to doing it with an automated uh, system. Or even when you brought these Delta ideas of gluing these veins to the back of an airplane, you know, even though it was a simple, intuitive and proven solution, the Air Force can have some very risk, and for very good reason, right? It's safety of flight. And it was like, well, you know, we got to figure out a way to rivet this. What are the kind of directives we need? Um, what are the structural modifications we had to make to the jets? And the argument you and others on your team made was, hey, look, these guys have blew them on an uncommercial service. Those airplanes are being run a lot harder than what we have in the Air Force inventory and haven't dislodged themselves. From your standpoint, what are the cultural organizational bureaucratic changes you're making. You would think optimal cargo load for aerodynamic efficiency would be something that we would be doing, 
But it, it really wasn't because we were looking to make sure that we have weight and balance generally right on the airplane as opposed to totally optimizing it for performance. What are the cultural changes? Because that tends to be the hardest thing as opposed to just spending $6 million on veins, for example. So thanks. Yeah, I was a naval aviator and uh, spent some time out in the Pacific and then transitioned to the Air Force and was the squadron commander of the 961st Airborne Air Control Squadron out of Okinawa, Japan, and did that trip between Okinawa and Guam and Hawaii multiple times during my four years out there as the operations officer and the commander. And what we saw from a cultural perspective, and this has existed for quite some time in the Air Force, is that the wing commanders and the squadron commanders like myself, we weren't um, tracking our fuel usage primarily because we weren't being charged for our fuel usage. I was given a task to fly a certain number of hours. And so I would make sure my crew logged those hours to get as best of the training as they could. But, you know, sometimes towards the end of September, we were just focused on that hourly requirement as opposed to actually what kind of training we were getting. So I was incentivized, I guess what I'm saying is I was incentivized as a squadron commander to think about fuel. And that's where this mission execution excellence program comes into play. What we did was is we said um, there are incentivization programs for installation commanders, for their buildings, and for the services they provide. And that's typically through the Installation Excellence Award program, where if you perform well, if you do a good job of conserving energy uh, at your base, that results in a cash award to the wing for quality of life types of things. And that didn't exist on the operation side. So operators, maintainers, logisticians weren't being incentivized to look at that. So a couple of years ago, we worked to get that into the budget. And what we've seen is that when you provide a, an incentive to the wing commanders to think about fuel, they'll start changing the way they execute the mission to consider that. Now, it's not the only consideration. You know, Their primary responsibility is for readiness to get uh, aircraft airborne, get air crews trained. But if you can mix the, I will incentivize you to change the way you look at fuel uh, with, I will also uh, provide you the tools that you haven't been able to afford in the past to help you execute the mission more effectively. Then you get a synergy that we saw at two locations the first year that we did this, which resulted in about a 10,000 pound decrease in landing weights because they were carrying extra fuel that would only contribute to burning more fuel and not actually contribute to the mission. And that was a roughly a million gallons of fuel saved for those two locations in one year. The second year we expanded it to five locations and we saw a 4 million gallon fuel savings with no impact on execution of the mission. And we actually think, you know, we're still doing the data on it. We actually think that if you consistently land aircraft lighter, you, reduce your maintenance requirements because you're not changing the brakes and tires and struts as often as you would in the past. Mm -hmm. So that's the first part. So trying to get to the crews and explain to them that this fuel has a value is of importance to us. But then at the MAGCOM and at the program offices, explaining to them through a separate program through section 2912 of the NDAA, which is brand new, which we were able to get in the books a couple of years ago when they rewrote the NDAA, that actually provides us this virtuous circle, which means that those process initiatives, as well as the technological initiatives, like, for example, putting veins on the side of aircraft, 
both of those result in our O&M accounts at the end of the year having more money in them than they would have had ordinarily. We don't typically go through our O&M completely by the end of the year. So there's available money that once you hit 30 September, that money expires. So part of the cultural piece is that Congress is incentivizing us through Section 2912 to save fuel. And by saving fuel at the end of the year and having an extra surplus or a bigger surplus than you normally would have had in our O&M accounts, they are allowing us to identify that amount of savings that was a result of our process or technological advances and set that money aside, add an additional year to it, and then use that for other process and technological advancements that we haven't been able to do in the past because you know our budget is a zero-sum game. And so with that, we've seen things that we invested in are going to result in the out years in additional savings to our O&M accounts, which will be able to be extracted in the year after execution when we add that year to it. And then additionally, Congress actually tweaked the law to say, hey, you can use those O&M accounts for O&M stuff. Like, for example, washing engines is an O&M account type of expense, but we'll let you recode it to rdt so you can test out new technologies and now procurement so you can buy those technologies once you've tested them out and they prove to be successful in helping you reduce your operations and maintenance funding requirements. So all of that all wrapped in together from a cultural perspective. Now the program offices who are starting to work through challenges that they have that have a link to efficiency are more willing to adopt things because, you know, whatever we bring to them is an extra requirement on top of all these other requirements that they have, Mm -hmm. as well as the major commands are willing to, like Air Mobility Command, is much more interested in our programs now because they know that the more that they play in our programs to optimize uh, operational energy usage, that the savings that they normally wouldn't have received in the budget are not coming back to them and they can be used for other things that they're trying to get after. Like data collection is a big one, other drag reduction efforts in aircraft like C-130s and C-17s. Those type of things will all build on one another. And it's really, uh, for us, that was great policy. You know, great policy from the folks in the Senate Armed Services and the House Armed Services, because really it's helping us get after something that in the past we just didn't have the money to do. And it's building on itself through this virtuous circle. Well, and of course, culture isn't just a matter of field commands. It's culture inside the Beltway as well. When someone comes up with a new idea, like flying C-17s in each other's wingtip vortices like geese, can you fund those experiments directly? Or do you have to convince someone elsewhere in the service that it's in their interest to do it? How does that work? So we can fund it through the Ops Energy Savings Account money that I talked about under Section 2912. And we have a year to expend those funds. And what we do is we go out to the major commands and we say, bring us your ideas, because oftentimes, you know, it helps to have someone who has an idea that you support as opposed to you bringing them an idea that you have. Right. So we've seen a mix of that type of work done. But yes, we can use this operational energy savings account money to do RDT&E for a particular technology like what you're talking about there, which is surfing aircraft vortices for efficiency. But, but, you know, obviously I have to convince the operators to give up an aircraft for a few days to actually test out the technology. In the case of that particular initiative, you have to have a software modification to the aircraft. So some of these things cost money, but we can pay for them with this operational energy savings account money. And then part of it is the better we do at data collection, we can actually realize what those no kidding savings were for execution 
and then use that money in the out years to fund other things. I want to take a moment to sort of take stock. The numbers you're talking about, sir, are extraordinary for anybody, right? And for the audience, right? When we talk about a gallon, it's 6.7 pounds of fuel, which is how the Air Force measures everything uh, in terms of on and offload from aircraft. So we're talking extraordinary numbers already, much bigger numbers, for example, than what you briefed uh, at the RAF conference in July. Give us kind of a quick snapshot because we, we know your time is precious and we're, we're winding it down. But give us a quick snapshot of where you're standing now in fuel savings and actually where you're going to be in a couple of years, right? Because you are steadily implementing changes that are actually improving the operational efficiency equation across the entire enterprise, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of give us, give us a sense on where we are, where we're going to go. And the ideas you're picking up, not just from Delta, but your sister services, right? I mean, the Navy's working this problem. The Army's working this problem as well. Uh, and they, you know, each operate vast fleets of aircraft as well. Yeah. So Air Force burns, you know, 55% of the liquid fuel of all the DOD. So we're, we're the biggest player. Our biggest, uh, you know, aircraft are, are the C-17, which burns about a billion dollars of fuel per year. The KC-135, about 750 a million per year. So you can see, and, and overall, it's it's roughly a five to $7 billion per year account. It used to be more than that when fuel prices were a little bit higher and when our activity was was better. And through this section 2912, we are right now looking at those things that we have implemented in the past, like for example, Jigsaw, which is the tanker planning tool at LUD, and other things that we've implemented in the past for like Coronet missions where you have fighters going against tanker aircraft, carrying them, ferrying them long uh, distances. Optimization of the airspeeds turned out to be saving some fuel there. So this year, we think we're going to recoup in our operational energy savings account about $30 million. We actually saved more than that, but there are certain things that we can't leverage. For example, a C-17 that saves money, but is carrying uh, other services assets and about 50% of our C-17 missions carry other services assets to, to different locations. We can't use those savings against our operational energy savings account. But 30 million for this year, we're going to harvest from last year's savings. We think next year it'll be closer to 50 to 75 million. And I say that because now from five locations that save 4 million gallons, which equates to about $16 million, we're going to expand that to several more locations under that Mission Execution Excellence Program. Just that program alone has the potential to save, based off of our analysis of all the sorties that were flown in Air Mobility Command, just that alone was around $80 million a year in savings uh, once the entire Air Mobility Command you know, fleet of aircraft are, are playing in the Mission Execution Excellence Program. When you expand it to other technological pieces like microvanes and engine modifications, we're pretty confident that we'll break into the triple digit millions of savings, you know, in the hundreds of millions of dollars in fuel. And, you know, if we get to 7.5% of a $6 billion to $8 billion or $7 billion fuel bill, you can see that's pretty significant numbers of hundreds of millions of dollars saved per year. A large part of that can be repurposed back into the Air Force for additional capability in efficiency and effectiveness of the mission. So it's a pretty big number, but hopefully that gives you an idea of the scope and, and we see it expanding quite a bit. You know, the key to it though is you got to collect the data and you got to be able to justify the expenses on the next set of initiatives you want to do 
that have some link to efficiency and effectiveness of the mission. You were complimentary to Congress for some of the legislation they passed, but do you think they understand the investment return equation? And do you need more resources from the Hill to make more magic happen? So they've been very generous, both in that policy, as well as in providing us funding for things like the Blend and Wing Body Initiative that we're working on and other things. So, you know, I think we're in a good, good place for them right now. I think between that policy and the leverage that we can provide in funding our mission through uh, the operational energy savings account, as well as what they're providing us right now, I think we're pretty well funded. I mean, now, now I would just say that the funding that we're receiving now is like 10 times what I was receiving a couple of years ago. So that plus up has really helped me get initiatives that in the past we couldn't afford to test or procure. Now we're getting them tested and procured. And then they're building on the operational energy savings account, which is really kind of outside the budget process, right? I mean, it's money that would have gone back to the treasury that's now being used for efficiency purposes. So I think we're in a good space right now. And again, all of it is about delivering operational efficiency to free up fuel to be used elsewhere, right? Because God forbid, when the shooting starts, the ability to operate is determined by uh, your access to fuel. One of the big innovations, and sir, you discussed it uh, just a moment ago, was the blended wing body concept that the United States Air Force is funding. Very novel acquisition program. Jet Zero is a small, innovative company. They're spearheading uh, the program. Northrop Grumman is a partner, as is Pratt & Whitney and others. I know your time is short, but talk to us about the importance of this program, because your office was instrumental working with Andrew Hunter, as well as Secretary Kendall, to get this program underway uh, and running that could be potentially game-changing, not just for military applications, but commercial as well. Yeah, so what we saw is that the Air Force was doing some pretty uh, innovative work in Agility Prime, which is looking at urban air mobility and how urban air mobility could be advanced quicker by priming the pump for investment in that technology. And when we saw that, and based off of our analysis of the Pacific, an understanding how much fuel we burn per year, which assets burn that fuel, and what kind of missions they have, we went down the path of trying to better understand what technologies were out there that would help us increase aerodynamic efficiency on aircraft. If you look at you know your 1950s 707, and then you look at like the plan form of a 21st century aircraft, like let's say a 737 MAX, the structure, the tube and wing doesn't look much different from what we saw in the 50s, right? So the aerodynamics have been optimized. There's winglets, there's other things that you can do on a tube and wing aircraft to make it better. But a lot of the efficiency gains that have happened from 1950 to 2020 have happened because of engine upgrades, better power plants than we've had in the past. And so we were aware of the work that NASA had done on blend and wing body, and they put hundreds of millions of dollars into that technology over the past 20 years. And we felt that this was a good opportunity for us to prime the pump for large aircraft development because we didn't see the big aircraft manufacturers going down that path. So the, the long game in the Pacific you know, a 30% more efficient aircraft at 4,000 miles, which is about halfway between Guam and Taiwan from a Hawaii takeoff location. It's about five to seven more fighters that you can refuel as compared to what we could do currently right now with the assets that we're procuring and we have procured in the past from an air mobility and aerial fueling perspective. So us going down that path is really to help us in the long game that we think we're going to see in the Pacific 
with the understanding that the aerodynamics is really the technology that needs to be looked at now. And so this project, we think it's a lower risk than our typical projects that we've had in that the amount of money that the Air Force is putting forward is a fraction of what we would have put forward if we had to pay for the whole thing. But we really think that that capability increase that you could see at distance, like the one I just described, is really important. So yes, the fuel savings are important because of fuel logistics supply chain risk in the Pacific. But there's also that second piece, which is if one aircraft can refuel five to seven F-35s as opposed to five aircraft or six aircraft doing that, then what do we do with those other assets that we couldn't do in the past because we didn't have enough tankers to support the entire scenario that we're looking at? We saw that in the way we executed the mission in LUD, where the percentage savings are not only just that you can save fuel, but that you have less aircraft to execute that particular scenario. That means that you have more aircraft to do more strike missions in that scenario or more aircraft to use somewhere else in the world that you might need them. Roberto Guerrero, Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Operational Energy, and brought it right back to the operations there in that last answer. Thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. Hey, I really appreciate the opportunity to spread the message on what we're working on. So thanks very much for that opportunity. Thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. And if you liked what you heard, hey, tell a friend, unless you think it would give them a competitive advantage. Thanks also to GE Aerospace for powering the entire flight. We'll be back next week.